Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I was visiting a church once to preach, and a very agitated-looking guy stopped me in the lobby as I entered and said, I hate that tie. I I didn't even know what to respond to that. I said, you do? I don't know what to say to that. Should I have called you this morning and asked you what tie you'd like me to wear? Oh, he said, I'm sorry. It's just that the former pastor here that I despised used to wear a red tie just like that in a black suit, just like you have on. When I see that red tie and that black suit, all I can see is him standing there in that pulpit. I just wish you would take that tie off. That is a very bad case of emotional historical view of things that triggers an emotional response. But it's not as rare as you think. I'm Mark Rutland. This is The Leader's Notebook. I'm so glad that you've joined for this podcast. This is the next in a series of podcasts based on my New York Times bestseller, Relaunch. The subtitle of that is How to Stage an Organizational Comeback. This is uh, now on into the series, and if you've missed some or all of the previous ones in the series, we archive everything. I want you to get every single one of them. I hope you'll listen to them and enjoy them. I also hope that you will get the book Relaunch. I want you to have this book. At the end of this broadcast, someone is going to tell you how to enter exactly the right coupon code and get a serious discount on Relaunch, and I want you to have it. You may want to consider getting more than one copy because I'm convinced once you get into this book, you're going to say to yourself, I can think of three, four, five more people that I think really ought to read this book. The um, the issue with the man who was triggered by my red tie and black suit is that every organization, as well as an individual, also has an emotional history. As my tie triggered emotional woundedness somehow from that one man, there is also the possibility that an entire organization, a church, a company, whatever, can have such a wounded past or some other kind of emotional past that something can trigger it and put it into action. I've already described much of my experience in Orlando, Calvary Church. I took over a church there that was emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and financially bankrupt. And I mean bankrupt. I was not even paid there for the first six months. We were 120 days behind to our vendors that had walked on the campus. I stood in the pulpit that first Sunday gave the congregants a big smile, and to them it looked like I was baring my teeth. Another big bad wolf. It was like adopting several hundred sexually abused children. If you say to a a normal child with a normal emotional past that you're a dad, it brings a smile to their face. But if that child has been molested, you say, I'm a dad, and they flinch. If you walk in the pulpit and you're introduced by the board as the new pastor and hundreds of people in the congregation flinch, you sense at an intuitive level, something is wrong here. At first, whatever I tried to do was viewed from that wounded framework. It seemed to trigger them. What are you trying to pull now? What is all this all about? We weren't born yesterday. 
some, many of them, had a kind of wounded watchdog mentality. It was very difficult to deal with, and we, it took us years to get beyond it. We did get beyond it, but it took a long time, and it was a struggle. Another possibility, and this is much more difficult, is a view that combines a wounded past with a golden era past. It's the worst of two worlds. We've been victims for the last few years. It's gone badly. The last leadership has made us feel horrible. But what makes it worse is the fact that we compare it with the golden era that came right before that. Now, the new leader is measured against a benevolent giant of the distant past while being held responsible for the depredations of a recent past. And of course, the recent past probably wasn't as bad as they remember, and the golden age may not have been as great as they remember. In either case, your best hope as the new turnaround leader is the hope of breaking through these historical prejudices by showing integrity, consistency, telling the truth over and over again until you're even sick of hearing your own truth. There is also the location-oriented worldview. In this book of mine that I hope you'll get relaunch, I actually talk about flex leadership on the chaos control continuum. I think that's one of the most important teachings of the book, and I hope you'll get that book. But in that, I mentioned the fact that you can measure location or you can measure speed, but you can't measure both at the same time. You may find yourself in the middle of an organization, particularly the board of an organization, that is fascinated with measuring the exact location of your organization, judging things based on where you are right now. The problem is it's not where you are right now. By the time you have the audit or whatever it is, it's not where you are now because you've moved. It's where you were when the audit was performed. There are probably people in your organization whose whole job is to assess current location. Accountants, for instance, or lawyers or HR professionals, people who are responsible for creating a snapshot of where the organization stands with regard to financial, legal, and other measurable realities. That's their job. They have to do it. And those people are vitally important. But a snapshot isn't a movie. I always tell young pastors when I teach at the National Institute of Christian Leadership, don't obsess over a snapshot. Watch the movie. If you have a board that is location-obsessed, it can encrust your organization with policies and procedures like barnacles on a ship. They want to police everything, control everything, dictate everything. Audits and legal issues can grind the whole organization to a halt. A location-oriented board or organization or church, if you will, can become highly obstructionist. They aren't opposed to success. They're opposed to change. They want success in terms that are measurable right this minute. They don't understand long-term rewards on short-term sacrifice. They want success in terms that are measurable right now. That is what they measure first. I keep mentioning the board in this context because it's not a problem for, say, your head accountant 
to be location-oriented in her view of things. That's her job. It's a problem, however, when the people who are in charge of making the policy decisions for your organization, such as the board, board of directors or uh, pastor's council, whatever it is, depending on the organization you're in, when they can't assess velocity or direction because they're so concerned with current location. In other words, you can't convince them you're making progress because they're measuring it in a fixed moment. They're not looking at the trend. The location-oriented board may say, for instance, we don't owe anybody anything. We're debt-free. Debt-free. Freedom from debt can be a great thing. I had to pay off huge debt at two different organizations. But it can also be a self-limiting factor. There's good debt and there's bad debt, regardless of what you hear on television. The location-oriented board insisting on measuring success right here, right now, loves cash on hand and debt-free. That's a good policy. I'm in favor of it. But sometimes you have to acquire some amount of debt in order to move forward. So suppose you own a company and you need a new truck. That would draw our cash down to $970,000. The board says, no, can do. We can't get a new truck. So the problem is you limp along with a bad truck. The truck collapses. The truck breaks down. Deliveries get hindered. But the board that is location-oriented is fixated on being debt-free, and they're unwilling to acquire short-term debt in order to make long-term progress. The third worldview is that of the vision-oriented organization. This is what you want, of course. The organization sees the vision and the purpose and the direction, and they're on board with you. It's not the employee's or member's job to set vision. That's your job as the leader. Their job is to take steps to implement that vision. A truly holistic visionary view takes into account the history of the organization, rules, policies, people, the vision. Where was this organization headed when it hit the rocks? Ideally, the people in your organization grasp the vision of where you are now headed without sacrificing people or ethics to that vision. It's only in this visionary context that the people in your organization will truly be able to see the reality of their situation. Let me give you an example, and that was my uh, time as the president of ORU. ORU is what they call a nameplate university, Oral Roberts University. I had to know what that was. I had to know what that meant emotionally, historically. In fact, I knew Oral Roberts. He was there at my inauguration as president. He gave his blessing to a Rutland presidency, and I took that very seriously. One thing I've learned about leadership is that when things go well, the leader gets more credit than he deserves, and when things go poorly, the leader gets more blame than he deserves. It's, it's just another failure of institutional reality. At ORU, I had to negotiate that for my own tenure. But that negotiation was complicated by the credit and blame reality by both of my predecessors. When people said that's not the way Oral did it during the golden era, I had to say, perhaps not. That's not the way Oral did it in 1964. But this is not 1964. I loved the man. I felt great loyalty to him. But that doesn't mean I needed to make all the boys wear suits and ties and make the girls wear skirts the way Oral did in the 1960s. I got some pushback from alumni over that. 
That didn't dishonor Oral. We honored Oral Roberts in every way I knew how. I started Founder's Day in January at his birthday. I would show clips of him preaching. I put quotes of his all over the campus. I knew that it was never going to be MRU. I was a short-term president. I told the board when I went there, would be there four or maybe at the outside six years. And I was there just slightly more than four years. So I knew it was not ever going to become MRU. I didn't want it to be MRU. It was ORU. So I had to make sure that that OR meant something. On the other hand, I had some angry old alumni who said, if you would just make all the boys wear ties, ORU would look like the place Or Roberts had in mind. On the other hand, I had younger alumni who were equally angry, saying, when you do this or that, it looks like something that happened in the bad time, which was not during Oral's presidency, but in the president after him, Oral's son, Richard. So there were people who felt who were measuring everything I did, like the red tie, that looks like what Richard did, and they'd get angry. And other people that measured what I did and said, that doesn't look like what Oral did, and they would get angry. So I had to negotiate all that and figure out a way to bring ORU's culture to a place where it could accept and embrace its past, affirm the good parts, acknowledge the troubled waters, and move on with a fresh vision. That is hard work. Trust me. And a leader may have to spend a lot of political capital to make it happen. That's part of the reason that the turnaround leader isn't usually the legacy leader for an organization. They have their ox in the ditch. The ship is on the reef. You come in and try to back the ship off the reef and sell tickets at the same time. The turnaround guy is a gunslinger. He comes in, runs off all the bad guys, cleans up the saloons, then gets on his horse and rides off. You seldom hire the gunslinger to be the mayor. One thing I knew about my time at ORU, I could not recreate the golden era. I was creating a new, fresh, tidied up, financially stable, emotionally balanced era to get ready for the next president and for a long-term presidency. I was trying to get the university's culture to a place where there was internal joy, heat, light, movement, growth, getting everyone and everything in order so that a legacy president could come in and not have to do the cleanup job. I was there as a cleanup guy. Part of seeing institutional reality, in other words, was seeing that my best service to that place was necessarily short-term service. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When I got there, one of the greatest points of contention was over the fact that ORU, in the midst of serious financial trouble, was still playing Division I NCAA sports. So I had many people on the board, constituency and students, who said, we're just pouring good money after bad. We're paying these uh, high-octane coaches. We have this huge gymnasium. NCAA Division I athletics is costing too much money when we don't even have the money to do the things that we need. I had other people that said, that Division I athletics is one of the key elements of Oral Roberts' vision. I can remember Oral used to say, the average businessman reads the sports page before he reads his Bible. And his view was to get ORU athletics, and it was in the early 70s, went into the NCAA tournament, basketball tournament. I think it went all the way to the Sweet 16. 
1974, had a great coach there, Kent Tricky, and great times there. So I had some people said, we want to get back to that. I had other people that said, we can't afford this. So I had to negotiate that. I had to deal with the people in the athletic department and say, I've got to trim budget. I've got to hold the line here. I've got to push it back. They thought their initial response was that I was the enemy of athletics. I said, listen to me, I'm on your side. I want to keep division one athletics here. I want top coaches. I want our basketball team to be one of the best teams in the nation. But right now, we're hanging by a thread financially. If you work with me, I'll throw my body on yours into board meetings. Then I had to go to board meetings and other meetings where they said, we want NCAA Division I athletics stopped right now. We want to move down to NAIA or even NCCAA, National Christian College Athletic Association. And I had to say to them, that's a mistake. If we do that, we further send a signal that ORU is sliding. What we've got to do is stabilize, hold the line, make it work. And I said, if we'll do that in the short term, do the best we can with athletics in the budget that we now have, when we finally have this thing completely out of debt and back on the road, then our athletic program can be what it ought to be. So right now, we'll play the best game we can with what we've got but not cancel Division I athletics. So as a result of that, for the whole time I was there, I had both camps feeling I wasn't giving them what they wanted. We were able to save Division I athletics. And now, due to ORU's basketball success, I'm glad that we did. I think it was the right thing to do, but it was an expensive thing. When you have half the people telling you that supporting something is going to ruin the organization and half the people telling you that ending it will ruin the organization. What it means is in leadership, you have to do what you think is the right thing to do, hold the line, honor the past, and at the same time set a pace for new direction, for vision and purpose. It's not always fun. Sometimes the rewards seem very frail, but the purpose is to lead that organization to a new place of stability and growth. You can do it. God will support you in it. But it's going to be one of the most strenuous things you've ever undertaken. Turnaround leadership is not for the faint of heart. Well, I'm so glad that you've joined for this episode of The Leader's Notebook. I hope that you will stay tuned now. I want you to hear how to get this New York Times best-selling book relaunch, how to stage an organizational comeback. Until we meet again, I'm Mark Rutland, and this is The Leader's Notebook. To order a copy of Relaunch, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter promo code RELAUNCH to receive $7 off of each book. To order by the case, call us toll-free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.